we like to think that we're all rational. We make decisions about uh, you know, business decisions. A lot of it is emotional, but we find the facts to, to back up the decisions we want to make. Welcome to the Pressnomics Podcast, where you'll hear from thought leaders in the WordPress ecosystem and beyond as we deconstruct powerful ideas that can help you in business and in life. Now, here's your host, Joshua Strabel. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm here with my good friend, Andy Wibbles, a 22-year-old veteran of marketing and product development and published author. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Andy, and tell us a little bit about your your exploits. Yeah, my name is Andy Wibbles. Uh, I currently live in San Francisco, but I'm from Indiana. Uh, I had a book back in 2006 called uh, Blog Wild, a guide for small business blogging. I was one of the first bloggers to get a book deal from a blog, so that was cool. And uh, that book kind of got me my job out here to San Francisco. I've been working in the startups uh, for the past 11 years. And right now, I am director of marketing at a search technology company called Lucidworks. Lucidworks, right. You know, so going back a little bit, how I met you, yeah. um, one of our first customers at Pagely was uh, Get Satisfaction. Right. And, and you, you were my contact there. You essentially were my customer. And we built up this great relationship. And I just love telling this funny story is, you know, we were just this small little company and we were trying to compete and look look bigger than we were. And I wanted a San Francisco address. So, <laughs> right. so I think I think we had like an informal deal where, hey man, just rent me like one square foot of your office and, and let me use your address on the website. That's right. Yeah, good good size back then. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what you do every day, uh, what your passions are in work. Um, you know, what gets you ticking? What gets that mind going? Yeah, I mean, my background is, you know, I, I just started watching The Dark Crystal on uh, Netflix. It's really good. Um, I can't believe, I'm so glad Ryan Froud, uh, the designer is still alive to like make all this new art. So it's fun to go into that world again. Anyway, um, I was big into puppets as a kid in my kindergarten and third and fourth grade. And uh, that turned into doing theater, obviously in high school and doing directing and writing work. So uh, that's why I studied in school and then I looked at my trajectory sort of overall, it's about storytelling and writing and how do you frame a product, a service, a company, an idea, a case study in terms of a story that can be passed along. Uh, you know, if I'm gonna be a little hippie-ish about it, I think that uh, the human brain is optimized to kind of retain knowledge in a story format. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, the arc or it's sort of, you know, um, something episodic, I think that we, tell stories in the formats that we do because our we, we cognitively retain information that way. I think civilizations pass information on in that way. So um, when I look at kind of all the stuff that I do, it's really about how can I create content that's compelling, whether it's really technical, which uh, our product is a search platform for making your, you know, we will run the search for your favorite home improvement online store all the way to the largest SharePoint deployment in the world, run by one of the top oil companies in the world. So oh goodness, it's, it could be that technical, or it could be something much simpler. It could be something based with AI and ML that we haven't even thought of yet. So part of it for me is how do I translate complex technology into concepts people can understand that, and and educated understand and and understand the implications of the technology. 
So you're, you're essentially describing kind of the oral tradition, right? Before the written word, there was a certain kind of format that things were passed down, this kind of oral tradition that, that you can go back and now read in like the old texts of the Iliad and such. And so you, you find that that's a compelling way to speak in today's generation, the same yeah, kind of format? When I'm doing a case study for a customer, it is literally the heroic journey. You have your before state when, you know, things were shitty and things were bad and it got so bad that this thing happened in this inciting moment where you you decided that you had to change your life which is you know in a in a, in a myth that's when the hero leaves the city uh, and then they find something new which for me is the product and it's obviously you know i'm a marketer so my product is always the grail my product is always manna from heaven my product is always you know excalibur so <laughs> the, 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 you know, the customer finds the, the the grail and they bring it back to the company and uh, they have you know fruition and benefits so for me it's that before state the discovery you know the the build up to the discovery the discovery and then um you know the using the product or service, and then how does that change their lives? And then, you know, at the end of every myth, it's always about they come back to the town with their new knowledge, um, whether it's a Skywalker or, you know, a Dark Crystal character, and how do they use that knowledge to educate people around them, which for me is, you know, in the terms of a marketing story, is they become fans or advocates or, you know, brand ambassadors. So I think about that in my head um, when I'm trying to understand, you know, what makes a product or service urgent, I think that we like to think that we're all rational. We make decisions about, uh, you know, business decisions. I, I really think that a lot of it is emotional, but we find the facts to, to back up the decisions we want to make. Yeah. Wow. So selling or buying, buying decisions, we think sometimes they're analytical, but they are very much emotionally driven. And so because, you know, some of the passes on the line. Somebody's job is on the line. So yes. like we have our, our annual conference next week and I'm doing customer interviews in a TV studio. And part of my question is like, when did it become so bad that with what you had before, when did it get so bad that you knew you needed something different? You know, whether it's, you know, the, the platform went down for the 14th time or it blew up on Black Friday or my boss dragged me in front of the board and yelled at me. There's always this kind of, switch moment of holy shit we cannot take this shit anymore you know and yeah. how we you know, we have to do something about it and that kind of is, is that inciting moment that in a story gets the story going but in marketing it's what was that point of of you couldn't tolerate your life anymore you know yeah the pain got so bad that regardless of lock-in or or the penalty of switching it was time to make a change and that that sounds like something you're, you're hitting on reoccurring is that that kind of the hero's journey, they, the, the pain was so bad, they had to change. And then, you know, what does it look like out there? When, once, once the, when you're doing your narrative, the pain's bad, now what? Yeah, so how did you find, you, know, you go looking for, you go out to the wilderness, which we, I guess we would call the RFP process, and you find the different solutions that could be what you want or the different products, the different, you know, diets you want to try or skincare creams you want to try or detergents. Uh, you find the one that's going to work for you, and then you test it out. And you know, again, as a marketer, um, I will try and sell my product for anything. That's my job. If you say, "How does Lucid Works, you know, give you clearer skin?" I will, I will find a way. Switch the product <laughs> and talk about it in a way that it will give you clearer skin, lose ten pounds, and you know, 
uh, a better love life in 10 days. <laughs> you know, the, the, job, the answer as a marketer is always the product. So how do you shift and still be honest about what the product can do, but adapt to the conversation that's being had at the time? Right. So it's, it's almost one-on-one. -on -one. Like yeah. each conversation needs to be tailored and unique. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's part of, you know, PR messaging where, you know, we have a launch next week for um, some new stuff and we have a whole marketing messaging document about how we're going to talk about it, whether it's to analysts or the press or developers or uh, you know, the open source community or uh, business stakeholders or C-level executives. And all of those audiences have different needs for technical detail versus conceptual detail. So how do you have, you know, we are a very technical product. Uh, most of the stuff I've worked with here has been pretty technical across all my companies. So how do you have the technical credibility um, and build that up to what the, what the C-level person needs to know? It's like, you know, you're going to put AI and ML into your applications on your internal enterprise search. Uh, you're going to put in clustering classification or uh, algorithms like word to vec or random forest, which I write a little bit about, don't really know what it means, but it's just a word that I know. And <laughs> how do you then explain to an executive what that means, why it's important? So it's, it's knowing how to take the story through different prisms and different points of view and adapt to who you're talking to. There's a, it's, it's sounds like it's gotta be quite malleable when it comes to product positioning and, and discussing, describing the journey and the buying process, what do you think are like the key things that maybe some other people are missing? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, when I used to sort of teach this stuff to small businesses, my whole thing was, you know, why we buy is, is for three main reasons. It was sort of like time, you know, money and sex that we, we, we buy things or we acquire things to save time, have more time, make better use of our time, so it's about leisure, it's about efficiency. And then we have the money side, which is you know how to save money, have more money, have a sense of luxury or that sense of security that having you know, money does for you. So in terms of a, you know, an, a business to business product, it's how do you save money and uh, whether it's in resources or efficiency in the software or whatever you're working with. And the third part is a little bit of a stretch, uh, is sort of, you know, how does this product have you make you sexier or better or more attractive? And yeah. for me, in a business context, that's how does this product make you appear more um, more attractive as a, as a user, as a stakeholder? Because your job is to bring this software in or bring this product in or do this thing. How is this going to make you more attractive mm -hmm. as a professional? Which is a bit of a stretch if I'm gonna put sex over here because it, it's not a true analog, but that's how I think about it, is how does you get, how do you get more visibility from the products and what you're doing in the workplace? Um, so that's, when I'm looking at a new product that we're putting together, I sort of slice things by those three points, which is how, you know, how does it help you save time, better time, faster, better, whatever, mm -hmm. and money, save money, have more money, more efficiency, more better use of resources, and then sort of the attractive factors. How does this make you look better to yourself, your customers, your boss, the press, analysts? Um, all that perception is kind of its own monster. And then I'm kind of a pessimist, so I have a fourth surprise. You know, this is like one of those, this was back when I was nuts about PowerPoint Venn diagrams, and they had sort of <laughs> um, And then over in the lower, you know, right, I would put this gray, 
this gray uh, circle that said salvation. Salvation. You know, I'm a playwright, so I, I think most characters act from selfish, you know, motivations. That it's all internal about what you want, uh, what you're going for, the world you want to see. But some people are honestly motiv motivated by, you know, salvation, redemption, great yeah. nirvana. So that's kind of my, my, that's, that's, I guess that's my Midwest nice side uh, showing a little bit. That's not always just sort of like time and money and sex, but there's part of a, of a salvation element of it as well. So that's kind of what I, when I'm dividing up how to talk about a product in my head, that's how I think about it. And then at the kind of meta meta level, you know, if I talk about it at the, the top level, every product is about control. Control as in? That your life is out of control. Your platform, your search apps, your phone, your marriage, whatever it is that you have this world that is out of control, this part of your life that's out of control, and this product or service is going to give you that. Oh. You look at CPG marketing for like, you know, Procter & Gamble, all those products, you know, brawny paper towels, it's like, you know, life is out of control. And every household product that's marketed to moms especially is about how do you get that control back. Yeah, busy moms, busy moms, yeah. chaos. You know, lifestyle choices. And this is how do you get that control, whether it's you know part of it or a large part of it. So that's the other question I ask our engineers and product guys is, you know, how does this what what you know it's the pain point it's the pain point argument, but more than just what's the pain point is how does this help people wrangle things and feel they have a sense of control? Okay, so based on those four pillars, you essentially think you could take any product and give it to any audience. I think those are the three avenues and or four that I start with when I'm trying to analyze how to talk about something. Mm -hmm. You Even mentioned all of them all the time, but especially in you know software that I work, technology that I work in, it's time and money is always the thing. It's always time and money, and and then how does it make things better and, and you know, make things better for people's lives or for your employees, your customers, and you appear better because of these new things. One thing that you mentioned that kind of struck me, uh, we, we talk about this a little bit in our sales and marketing meetings internally, is yes, the organization is your customer. You know, the, the, the greater organization that's buying your platform or buying your product. But at the end of the day, it's Mary from purchasing. And she's, she's got five years to retirement and kids in college. Her ass is on the line making this buying decision. She's the one that gets hauled in front of the board and fired or whatnot if it goes wrong. So while we, we talk about you know, the, the time and the money and the, and the sex appeal and all these things in terms of the whole organization, we try to never forget Mary. It's just about Mary right now. Yeah, there is somebody that just wants to get a blog post up. Or exactly. they forgot how the categories work. Or the plugin's not working because they upgraded automatically and they don't know what to do. You know, and and I, you know, it's, it's, again, with storytelling, the more specific a story is, often the more universal it looks. Because we all know how it is when things go wrong or blow up at work, you, you're on the line, you don't know how to fix it. So decisions are made by individuals. Um, you know, you have your committee, in the, you have your committee decision making, of course, but at the end of the day, somebody says, we're gonna sign off this, we're gonna do it, and if it blows up, it's literally me. Like it's mm -hmm. on me to figure out. Yeah, that, there's the a lot riding on it. Uh, yeah, so it's, it could be the admin that is the person that has to learn how to use the friggin' thing, or it could be the stakeholders or the c executive trying to explain you know, why we bought this billion-dollar platform. 
Yeah. Hey, so let's talk about blogging. You said uh, that you were the, one of the first authors to get a book deal based on your blogging. So take us back. What sort of content were you writing about? What was the format, the medium? And then how did you get the exposure that then got a publisher calling? Yeah. And so when you're writing copy or, or you know, putting something, a message out there, it's not about you as the brand, as the product. It's about how our customers talking to each other about what they're doing with your product. So it's yes. that warmth, that passionate human voice that really drew people in with social media in the first place. Uh, you know, that's why you had these uh, news blogs because that were kind of turning the world of journalism upside down where it wasn't. You know, I'm not going to wait until I know everything for sure. I'm going to publish what I know now. Hot takes. I go along and do a hot take. You know, every, yeah. and right now, like everything is a hot take. Like we have, we have destroyed the culture with hot take culture, basically. <laughs> all hot takes. Uh, anyway, so that is, uh, I started teaching blogging to entrepreneurs and I had a newsletter and I was doing sort of uh, conference, uh, classes like this where I was doing distance learning, teaching people how to use TypePad and blogger and how to use email newsletters and podcasting and all that stuff back then. This was all pre-Facebook. Um, and then um, I got like blog of the year by Marketing Sherpa, I think. Oh, nice. Because uh, they had like a, a fan favorite category and I had sent my newsletter to go vote for me. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's what got me the attention from some editors at Portfolio, which is a pink uh, out of Penguin. Is you know one of them said, hey, I you know I like your writing. I can see from your blog, you know what the hell you're doing. You know what the hell you're saying. Uh, would you want to write a book to be in bookstores? And I'm like, this never happens. So um, that came out back in 2006, and um, I had you know I had to choose a blog platform to put forward. And WordPress is not as mature back then as it is now. Yeah. And um, I've been teaching people on TypePad, which uh, for people that don't know what the TypePad is, it is one of the older blog platforms. 
from a company called Six Apart, which they sold TypePad to another company. I can't remember right the second, but um, so I had been teaching people how to use software, and um, I, I had featured them in my book, and so I reached out to somebody that works there and said, hey, you know, I've been like teaching the world how to use your software, and they said, oh, well, we have this marketing manager position open, and we need somebody to do customer training, and so that's that gets us to 2008, which is how I got to San Francisco for my first job in San Francisco. Was nice. a trainer for this, this blogging company. So, if you don't mind me asking, how did the book sell? Uh, I think about 30, let's see. I just barely made the advance back. Ah, right. Um, we did an Amazon campaign. I got pretty far up there on a couple of days of getting people to buy the book. Um, but, and it did pretty well, but I think my editor changed midway, so I think that also changed my, sort of the focus they had on the book as well. Ah, I gotcha. So but it was, a, it was something, you know, that I can always say that I did, and, you know, a few people write their own books. I literally wrote the whole thing myself, you know, um, and it was a great experience, and it, it got me sort of to this job and, and level that I have now. And we'll go ahead and pause here for a moment to thank our sponsor who makes this podcast possible. Shout out to Pagely. Pagely is the original managed WordPress hosting provider in business for over a decade, working behind the scenes to scale the WordPress presence for some of the world's largest brands. Companies like Disney, Warner Brothers, Comcast, Univision, Meredith, and more all trust Pagely to ensure flawless uptime and security for their WordPress websites. If you have a high traffic or high criticality WordPress site that absolutely cannot go down, visit pagely.com quote for a free consultation. That's P-A-G-E-L-Y dot com slash quote. And now back to our interview. So, and like you said, it got you to San Francisco. So you've been there for, you said about 10 years, eight, nine years. What's... Uh, eight years, yeah. Oh, wait, 11 years, sorry. 11 years. What's life in this city like now? Um, you know, if you watch social media, there's a lot of flight. People are, you know, the tech scene is leaving San Francisco to some degree. But, you know, it's not ever going to go away. What's it like for you to live there with your uh, husband? Uh, I mean, I'm, we're literally, like, I can show you right now, like, that's literally Twitter right there. Oh, wow. So we live, like, right next door to Twitter. Um, so we're literally downtown right now. Um, it's a very strange city. You know, it's kind of the, the tragedy of, of progressivism when, when people sort of get too left-sided about things. You know, we just, the city just declared the NRA to be a terrorist organization or they just found new terms they're gonna use for felons or people in prison. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the, the streets are covered in shit and the homeless problem is completely out of control. And oh. uh, there have been conferences that have moved out of San Francisco because the attendees are horrified by sort of the homeless problem here. Um, but it's an amazing city to live in. It is uh, vibrant at all times, you know. It's my husband and I, so it's great that, you know, where you don't feel out of place, don't feel threatened, you know. I mean, people might throw something at us every once in a while, but that's relatively infrequent for San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but it's a really, it's a strange city because of the huge wealth inequality where you have, you know, I'm sitting in a eighth floor of a 40 story luxury apartment building. Um, and then there's people that are, there's 10 cities under the overpass at night. So it's, um, it's a very strange combination of economics and like I said, it's kind of like if you take the sort of the techno libertarianism that invented the internet and all this technology and push it to its limit and add in all this progressivism, mm -hmm. that's kind of what happens. 
it's, it's too much of a good thing. You know, it was, it's got a great ideal set on paper, and if executed in moderation all around, it might be utopia. But when a few things are getting out of whack, yeah. then it's kind of taken too far is what you're saying. Or I always point people to, there's a map of San Francisco with the height requirements for building. And, you know, you look at the yellow, which is the limit is four stories. And most of the city has a limit of four stories for building. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to build an apartment building, you have to build very expensive condos or apartments because you only build four to five floors. And then you can't really devote a whole lot of units for the below market rate housing for the that need that um, and it really comes down to people here are enjoying their property values and they want yeah. their view of the bay and that's that's like once you sort of realize you're like oh this makes more sense once i realize people are you know they'll throw up a, a two-year delay for an environmental study over taking a mural down or converting a laundromat into uh you know uh, a condo building it's really uh, it's very once you kind of realize that it's about preserving people's property values as well as sort of their view of the bay or their view of the skyline, it makes a lot more sense. Um, but also at the same time, there are neighborhoods where the commercial rents are so out of control that restaurants are closing left and right. Like you're the Castro neighborhood right now. Uh, there's restaurants that close, you know, every couple of months because uh, restaurateurs, proprietors, business owners cannot make enough money to pay the rents and the landlords are raising the rents sort of out you know higher than they should be given the merchants um even just here in this corner of 10th and market in san you know down by twitter um there's restaurants that have come and gone really you know high scale restaurants and i think people underestimate how much these tech folks want to leave the house you know if I, if I come back from the gym at night there's all these um postmates people coming in and grab people coming in and People just uh, have that, it's, a, it's almost a fortress mentality sometimes. Yeah, perfect. Um, it's a great city, it's a crazy city. You know, I'm from Indiana, so it's nice to kind of go from conservative side of things to much, I mean, I, I was raised pretty liberal, but due to sort of really outrageous uh, liberty, libertinism, you know, we have, uh, in a couple of weeks, we have what we call the Folsom Street Fair, which is a, uh, a very wild weekend of libertine behavior. Um, so we'll see how, and, and, it's, and the whole city celebrates it. It's really interesting. That's very, you know, uh, European, I would guess, I would say. You know, what you said about where it's almost, it's a capitalist thing about real estate valuations. Yeah. Um, I was reading the other day, Japan, Denmark, a few other countries have negative interest rates on home loans right now because it's, it's obviously subsidized and, and the federal governments of those countries want to encourage home ownership and want to limit the um, wealth disparity, make sure everybody has a place to live. And there's trade-offs with each economic model. But, you know, my wife's Danish and we're, we're looking at like, wow, you can, the government will pay you a half a percent to go buy a house in Denmark? Hmm. And I think there's an element, like if you look at, because this is happening all over, the, all over the world where people are being priced out of, you know, neighborhoods and you know, it's the financialization of real estate where in New York you have empty buildings uh, in, in Manhattan with and nobody can afford to run a bodega on the corner store because they've been putting money as investments into these buildings and not as places for people to live. So I think yeah. the financialization globally of real estate is, is a pretty big trend. 
that's making it uh, a dire need for everybody. You know, there's, I don't think there's any place in the country that a minimum wage job can pay the average rent. Yeah, certainly. Like, well, how did this happen? Who is the money going to? Who did it go to before? What's actually changed? I think a lot of it is treating real estate as investments versus as a place where I live um, changes that priority. So you mentioned, um, you know, you had your Midwest upbringing and and you're fairly liberal uh, in the Midwest. I don't know. Does that make you um, conservative in California or... Uh, I mean, my, my parents were public school teachers, and so, you know, teachers are usually pretty progressive-minded, and, you know, they were hand weavers, so we grew up, um, they are, they helped preserve Appalachian folk weaving styles, so in wow. the summer, we would do craft fairs all over uh, Kentucky, Indiana, and Tennessee with, you know, hand-woven rugs and garments and, and you know, mats and, and shirts and, and scarves, and that was our summer job, was weaving, so we, like, we had a sweatshop growing up. Um, so they were very sort of hippie, but without the drugs is what I usually say. Gotcha. So very sort of open-minded, and it was more a sense of, you know, there's all kinds of people, but here's what we do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Sort of liberal in thought, conservative in action. Uh, and then coming in, I lived in Chicago for 10 years, and that was sort of a nice in-between of the sort of the big city point of view. I, I still miss living in Chicago. We just talk about moving back. And um, and sort of the, the big city of Chicago, the big city field, and sort of still have the practical mindset of of, of Chicago, of the, of the Midwest. Yeah. And I always tell people when I did my first day at my first job in San Francisco, um, you know, I showed up at like eight, and nobody was there. The office manager had not even opened the building yet, and you know, there's a certain laxness in San Francisco where. People just don't show up for meetings on time. You just sort of have to recognize there's that looseness that people have here. Yeah. Is, you know, I don't know if everybody's stoned all the time or <laughs> other things to do, but there's just this sort of, uh, it's much more relaxed compared to like East Coast where it's go, 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 go. Yeah. It's much more, um, much more laid back. Not but, like Hawaii laid back, but you know. In between. You said a word, practicality. And I think sometimes uh, the tech scene could use a dose of practicality. Like, uh, are, are scooters on every corner really practical, you know? I mean, I saw two guys on the street who were probably out of their minds ripping apart two scooters by the train stop and screaming yesterday. Oh. And the whole scooter thing was an interesting attitude because it was that kind of that tech bro point of view of, you know, fuck the commons. I'm going to litter the streets with these scooters on a public thoroughfare and screw what anybody else thinks. I'm going to treat all these sidewalks as my private parking lot. Yeah. As you know, it's that old, you know, the, 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 the tech bro thing of, uh, you know, nobody's going to stop me if I'm just going to do it myself, um, which is a very privileged point of view. And, and the city, and for a while, for a couple of months, we had just scooters littering the streets and, They'd pick them up and recharge them, put them back, and it was just. Um, and the, the, finally, they got some permits that sort of shut it down and made it a lot more sensible. Yeah, but it was. It was a perfect example of the attitude of, I don't care if I blow up the municipal taxi system like Uber and Lyft are doing. I don't care if uh, if you know this disruption removes people's jobs or livelihood or condemns them to poverty or uproots their entire family. You know that it's. it's it's the belief that you know my my progress, my advancement, is over everybody else's. I mean, the joke I make lately is you know if we have all this AI and ML, 
why don't we have these machines decide how can we have an economy that you know replicates the post World War II prosperity that we all sort of harken back to yeah. for everybody? You know, how can we have an economy that gives us our Norman Rockwell, but with diversity point of view, with everybody having jobs and healthcare and families and and you know prosperity, and so nobody's dying in the middle of the street at night. Now, that Just- is what AI should be working on not how to deliver my fucking fried chicken to me, you know, from tenderloin to here with a little robot that's going to get ripped off anyway. Can we we put these supercomputers and and algorithms to use on the basics, like people not dying in the street? Can we just start start there? You know, that's not glamorous problems. You You know, the other joke I've heard is so many of these companies and apps and startups are really just replicating things that your mom did for you. You had you had the one where they come pick up your laundry, do your dry cleaning, you know, maid service by the hour, um, or you know, it's like there's a reason why we all don't have butlers. It's really expensive, and maybe the margin isn't enough to justify building an app to do it. Yeah, yeah, that is so. Is is does 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 converting something into an app and anonymizing sort of the hiring process and the the provisioning of, of finding people to do things does is that does that savings actually is that is that enough to build a business you know well and efficient markets where there's people that want to do things and people that want to need things and you match them up um can you you know it's that rent seeking how can you shave a little bit off the top for yourself when you're not really adding a whole lot yeah, some of the spectacular flameouts are testament that maybe there's not enough margin up yeah, there I mean, on top. The Uber numbers. Um, I mean, if I could sp- if I could spend if I could spend a billion in marketing a quarter, I could sell the shit out of things. You know, I, <laughs> it just blows my mind. Just like vaporizing billions of dollars a quarter, and we're all okay with that. And the market, and the, the 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 stock price is doing pretty well. But I will I will confess, I live literally on the same block as Uber, like I can turn to the left and it's right there along with Square. So I kind of hope that I don't want them to do well because then all those people who want to live here uh. in this building and jack up the rent even more. And I know the lockout is coming soon where they can all cash in their stocks. So I'm like, oh God, it's gonna, you know, yep. it might throw our rent that we have to either leave the city or move somewhere different. <laughs> Wow. So it's, it's got a very uh, personal, you have a very personal stake on, on kind of the future uh, IPOs and um, cash outs. Yeah, I, I do. And, you know, and that's another, that's another sort of dynamic of San Francisco I, I would talk, I would mention is you always feel squeezed. You know, I think no matter how much you make or where you live, you always feel this constant kind of enclosing circle as things get more expensive, as things get harder to afford whether you have a car or not, or a parking space or not, or kids or not, it's just like, it just keeps getting more and more difficult to live here. And you have to weigh the benefits of it. You know, it's like, you could just visit often and not live yeah. here if you want. And is it worth it to keep putting up with those dynamics where people looking at it from the outside from other cities are like, you are out of your mind. Why would you pay that much to live in a one bedroom apartment? That's actually insane. You know, so it's it's a give and take, and um, and it's that it's that sense of like everything is constantly closing in around you. You're gonna have to figure out how to make it work yeah. or do better. 
Where would be home if it wasn't San Francisco? Where would you and your uh, husband end up? I mean, we talk about Chicago a lot because his family's in Milwaukee, mine's in Indiana, and that's kind of mm -hmm. fly back and forth. And we lived there for 10 years, and yeah, it's cold as hell, but like millions of people and civilizations managed to make it work every winter and survive. And we could probably travel more if we lived there. Um, and he's a flight attendant, so he'd be flying out of SFO, which would be a lot, which he could transfer relatively easily. Uh, I really don't know right now, but um, we talk about San Diego as well, because San Diego is kind of like gay enough, where it's still out here. Um, it's not totally, you know, whitey town. It's not totally straight town. So we'll see. Yeah. You know, and the Rust Belt is kind of making, I think, a renaissance, or it's, at least it's poised for renaissance. I think all these sort of first-tier cities are maxing out that people just don't want to pay the salaries for people to work here anymore. So they're turning to Minneapolis, and, you know, there's a, there's tech startup stuff happening in Louisville by where I grew up, and in Nashville, where they're looking at other cities and other regions where, you know, there's developers in the Midwest that would like to live next to their families but still work on software. Yeah. And probably have much cheaper salaries. You know, that, that's kind of the, you know, all these tech people say that, you know, we have decentralized teams and remote workers and how great that is, but then they have, they pay all these development teams really high salaries to stay in San Francisco or stay in the Bay Area mm. or you know, Seattle or Portland or Austin, wherever, New York. So, so your criteria is a uh, uh, relaxing, comfortable city that is, uh, friendly and uh, welcoming. <laughs> right. Sort of, you know, gay enough that we're not going to get shit thrown at ourselves from old things. You know, that's kind <laughs> of a, the metric is uh, we will not get attacked for being married. It's kind of the, uh, I guess if that's the baseline for deciding where you live, that's kind of terrible, but that's the reality of where we are in this country right now. <sighs> what you said about where we are in this country right now, you, you were referencing the time shortly after 9-11 and contrasting it with today. I, I don't know which is worse. Well, it's, you know, I think that the rehabilitation of George W. Bush's reputation in the, while Trump has the spotlight is kind of shocking. It's like all those people literally lied to get us into two wars and broke Geneva conventions by torturing people. And they knew all of that. And, you know, and then George gives Michelle Obama a piece of candy at a funeral and everybody's like, oh, he's such a nice elderly statesman. He, pay, he paints now. It's like, no, he's, he's still what he was and what the mistakes he made. And I think that um, you know, people, we, we don't talk about where the, where the troops are, where the soldiers are, where our military operations are, because Americans just don't like to think about that. We don't think about ourselves as having tendrils all over the world with our military actions. So I think that's um, you know part of for George W. Bush is that rehabilitation that he's this elderly statesman. When it's like, no, he was really that was some pretty terrible times in terms of how we shredded civil rights, uh, how we went to war, how we embraced xenophobia and panic, instead of appealing to our better higher selves. You know, that's always that. Well, I remember that there was an essay where it was you know after 9/11, a few days later. George W. Bush got on the TV and instead of really pulling people together, it was like, well, people need to go to the malls and start shopping now. You have to get the economy back going. It wasn't, let's embrace things. Let's like, it was, let's all go shopping. And then we have to get the, we have to get the stock market open. 
but there's literally a, you know, an open cemetery in downtown New York, but we have to get the stock market running again. So it was kind of, it was kind of a little schizophrenic. Um, with Trump, and I, and I think that with Trump, and I'm, I'm going to be very political for a little bit, if that's okay, is I think that we have sort of the end game of the Republican Southern strategy, where you know the Republicans made a very specific move in the 60s to appeal to white resentment in the South, to white Democrats who kind of resented civil rights progress, mm-hmm. and that to bring them to the Republican side of things. You know, it used to be farmers were always Democrats, they were always liberals, because that was, they were, that was who helped them. And then they, uh, the Southern strategy was a way to sort of key off that resentment and bring yeah. people into the Republican side of things. And this, you know, Trump is the end game of that. And I think you can't look at any issue today in politics without seeing, without putting it through a lens of white supremacy and the sort of the race history of the, of the country. Because if you dig around pretty much everything that's bad about where we are right now, like, you know, if you look at tipping, we have tipping because of racist wage policies. If you look yeah. at the war on drugs, Nixon put it together to um, put black people in jail and get rid of war dissenters. You know, it's like it's always kind of like it's either racism or sexism. Usually, it's like one of those, <laughs> one way or another. But I think Trump is the end game of this. Of you know, he really is aligning himself with the white supremacist movement in the United States, and I don't know where it goes next. Um, because a lot of people feel like there was just a, a study that they interviewed a lot of Trump supporters, about 6,000 of them, and a quarter of them said that they really just feel like things need to burn down to the ground for us to start over again. So it's that nihilism that's really concerning. Um, but you find that on the left side, too, where people are like, you know, let's just write it all in, write it into hell and incinerate everything, and then we will somehow build a new civilization. So. Who knows? But I think you know Trump is is not an aberration. I think he's the he's the the eventual manifestation of strategy yeah. for several decades. And I think that you know, as speaking of the person that's on the left side of, of things for the most part, well, every part, um, they you, you sort of have to tie Trump to the Republican Party and throw him off the dock. Yeah. You know, yeah. Biden says Biden has this fantasy that oh, once a Democrat, you know, once somebody different is in power. The Republicans will act different, no. and I don't think they will because they've been able to throw everybody else under the bus, individuals, groups, um, to retain power. I don't think they're going to give that up very easily. I don't think so either. Um, when when Trump first got elected, I think it was I was telling my wife something like, "Okay, this is a shit show." But in four years, when it runs its course, we have to not just beat him. We have to obliterate that side. You know, you, have, you can't leave a shred of it. You know, even, a, even the tip, tip of a blade of grass, it has to just all be burned down or else it's just going to manifest and keep coming. Well, and I think a lot of people were very optimistic, thinking, okay, well, you know, we've got over the race thing over the past, past two decades. But it's like, no, we're going to have to excavate this out, all out all over again. Look at it get a generation to sort of reconsider it, get a new generation that educate, educated on it. And will that make any difference? You know, it's, it's a very, you know, it, it, it's, it's the whole, you know, people, the, you know, the, the preppers have their fantasy of sort of this race war happening. It's like, well, I, you know, what does that look like to these people where they feel like they're armed to the teeth, they have to have a bunker yeah. and the people they don't like are going to come get them, you know, 
but again, I'm again, I'm sitting here in a apartment building, so they would probably come to get me as well, and I'd be like, no, wait, I'm a little, I'm gay, it's okay. Who knows? You know. Wow. So, Andy, we covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> this is, this is, this is going to be one. <laughs> this is one for the ages. I love it. All right, so Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we talked about the hero's journey, your your books, the publishing, San Francisco politics. Get out and vote this uh, November, everybody. Yeah. So please um, tell everybody where they can find you online, Andy. All right, I have a blog that is in desperate need of updating, so don't make fun of me. It's andywibbles.com. And then I have a personal blog that is probably too rowdy for a business context. But that is at andymatic.com. That's my old personal blog, which is probably a little obnoxious right now. Uh, so if you are um, conservative or uh, prone to clutch your pearls, have them ready to go as you do it. Or on Instagram uh, at andymaticgram. And then um, I've got a medium, but that's just my wedding essay. Uh, what else? That's really it. And Facebook, you can find on Facebook easily. Yeah. All right. So go out there and uh, see the words that Andy have put to paper or yeah. digital paper. Twitter, Twitter, Andy Matic is my Twitter handle too. So, perfect. All right, thank awesome. you so so much. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Pressnomics podcast. Get transcripts, show notes, links, and more for this and all other episodes at pagely.com forward slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe to receive future episodes via your favorite podcast listening platform. The Pressnomics podcast is supported in part by Pagely, the original managed WordPress hosting provider, helping the world's largest brands run their WordPress presence at scale. Visit pagely.com forward slash quote to get your free quote today.